Welcome along. It's another update from Red Star Radio on the war in Ukraine, its military aspects, its political aspects, and its economic aspects, of which there are always plenty to go through. Now, today, the day was dominated in British terms by the disintegration of the Trust Ministry, and that is, it was a record-setting ministry in that it lasted six whole weeks, making, of course, Liz Trust the shortest-serving Prime Minister ever in the history of modern Britain, which is truly an achievement for the ages. It's something which she will be remembered for. There's not many who can say they have earned a place in history uh, after only six weeks, but Liz Truss has done it. Truly a remarkable achievement. I'll come to talk more about Britain later on. If you want a rundown of the political situation in Britain today, I posted an audio update on my Telegram channel earlier, on this afternoon when Trust resigned. You can find that on there if you want a more uh, overview of uh, what is going on. Today, um, I'll, in this update, just be addressing the aspects of it that relate to the uh, Russia-Ukraine war. So, what do we have at the moment is a situation where the Russians are advancing up in the north near the Kharkov region. As I outlined yesterday, they have gone back onto the offensive around there. There's continued movement by the Wagner Group and the division of the Russian army that's around the city of Bakhmut, and that looks increasingly like it will fall at some point soon, though as I outlined yesterday, the Ukrainians are rigidly sticking to the idea of no step back on that particular front. And of course we have the gathering storm down in the south in Kherson where the Ukrainians have done some attempts at advancing today and lost a lot of manpower and armored vehicles in the uh, subsequent action but the Russian sources which I'm looking at are very much insisting that this was only some kind of test that they were probing the Russian defenses looking for weak points and doing so of course sacrificed uh, a large amount of men. The bigger thing is, of course, that Ukraine continues to try and burst the dam of the reservoir near Kherson in order to try and flood the Kherson region, potentially cut off the Zaporozhye nuclear power plant and also endanger the water supply for Crimea itself. So far, they have not succeeded, but they have been signaling their intention to step up their efforts because uh, Zelensky is reported to have said today that uh, if that dam blows up then it's Russian terrorists who have done it. Yes, those crafty Russians blowing up a dam that would actually make their military situation much worse if it was to explode and potentially impact the civilian population's water supply as well. This is the strange uh, quadruple game, quintuplet game, um, that uh, the, it's the 10D chess that Putin is apparently playing. Uh, I mean, <laughs> to believe this, you'd have to be an idiot. You'd have to have had a severe head injury to believe the stuff that Zelensky says. I don't think Zelensky believes the stuff that Zelensky says, but perhaps he's on enough of the old Colombian special to just believe anything that his handlers stick in front of him these days, just like Joe Biden. But... That's um, the propaganda coming out of Kiev. Meanwhile, Aristovich, Alexei Aristovich, the chief propagandist for Zelensky um, and his old friend from the TV days, said that uh, Ukraine could be without uh, power for months. He casually said it in one of these like excruciating broadcasts that he does. So that's the caliber of people running Ukraine on behalf of the U.S. empire at the moment. Meanwhile, 
uh, a bill coming to the floor of the U.S. House of Representatives soon. It looks to pledge $50 billion to Ukraine. Uh, they're trying to get this passed uh, just before the midterms because even though there won't be much of a um, change in policy, there is the risk if the Democrats lose and lose big the Republicans will try to focus on something else, particularly if things look like they're going south badly for Ukraine and they want to get away from this expensive mistake. So the Democrats are obviously looking to, with, of course, assistance from Republicans like that absolute cretin, Adam Kinzinger, who always looks like he's about to burst into tears or commit a war crime or both. Uh, they are obviously trying to push this through because Zelensky was complaining the other day that he needed that amount of money just to get Ukraine through another year. Though, given the astonishing amount of corruption that is documented by many international organizations, including many from the West, that does exist inside the Ukrainian government, you have to wonder where all this is going and and how much of this money is going to end up revealed as having been funneled into a Swiss bank account or Given that the Swiss bank's looking a bit shaky these days, maybe a more uh, certain bet would be an American bank account. And uh, when Zelensky is retired to a safe place, maybe in Miami, uh, he can access some of those funds. Who knows? But certainly it doesn't seem to all be going to uh, benefit the Ukrainian working class, of course. And we're also getting reports, again, this is claimed from Russian telegram channels that there have even been some surrenders from Ukrainian forces down in the Kherson region today. So there may be morale issues developing inside the Ukrainian forces. Certainly the Ukrainian state itself is under increased pressure. Without this 50 billion, apparently it cannot survive. And when a state is in a situation where it is moving towards being in total war with the Russian armed forces, in the Russian state, which it has not been in total war thus far. And here I will recall... Yesterday's meeting of the Russian Security Council, where uh, Putin and the others made a number of decisions, including the forming of a coordinating committee headed by uh, Prime Minister uh, Mikhail Mashutin, um, who are going to oversee the special military operation, but also make sure that the activities of the state and economy are coordinated with it. And it's the first time that um, the Russian leadership has basically stated that they will need to take measures over the economy more so than they have done already to direct production in order to support the war. And this is something which I, when I was talking on earlier live streams about uh, the nature of the Russian government and Russian Bonapartism under Putin, that I didn't think that this was something that they would have what they would want to do. But clearly, they've been moved to a place where they now feel as if they have to do this. They have to be prepared to take even more state direction over the economy. And so far, that's been something which has actually worked out quite well for the Russian government, considering that they've um, balanced things out, that they've withstood the worst of the sanctions, but now they need to get on and win the war. And so far, they have set up this uh, state committee which is going to oversee this process. Putin isn't on it but uh, Mishutin um, will report directly to him and there are some comparisons being made by long-time Russia observers that this is similar to um, the committee that Stalin run, uh, ran in World War II or even the one that was existing under the Tsar in World War One. Either way it's clearly a another level uh, of military or, and political organization that takes us further towards uh, Russia being in a full state of war. And 
that reminds me of the fact that we have been through several stages in this war and where there's been several plans that various parties involved in it that they have had all of which have gone wrong blown up or um, eroded in front of our eyes uh, everybody's calculations have twisted and turned in different ways but um, at each stage uh, the uh, nato countries have managed to gamble in the wrong direction now I did a whole show on mistaken assumptions uh, made by various different parties about Ukraine, and you can go and find that on the Patreon archive. But to summarize where we are at the moment, initially, the Russians looked to do a very limited intervention in Ukraine that was mainly going to be orientated around supporting the forces of the Donetsk and Lukansk People's Republic so that they would be able to reclaim their territory, push the Ukrainians out, and then strike a bargain. The Russians would then strike a bargain with the Ukrainian leadership over uh, Ukrainian neutrality and, uh, um, of course, the, uh, the, the two republics and Crimea had gone. And that was now a done deal, and then therefore a new a new agreement needed to be reached with Zelensky. This was a plan that nearly worked, and we've had many sources now confirm that this was a deal that was almost signed uh, between uh, the Kiev government and the Russian uh, leadership uh, led by Putin, and that what killed it was. Well, the collective forces of the American bloc. First, the EU, according to Jacques Beau's account of things. It was the EU leaders before even the Americans and the British who kiboshed this thing and told Zelensky he had to, uh, the Ukraine had to keep fighting. And then, of course, Biden's handlers and Boris Johnson piled in, promising the world to Zelensky if he kept fighting because they had made a fundamental miscalculation. And this is something which, by the way, the former Italian prime minister and potential kingmaker, though this could change that, if Silvio Berlusconi, his private leaked conversation that he had, confirmed uh, what many of us um, suspected yet again. In these comments, which have been released presumably by Berlusconi's many political enemies inside Italy and outside of Italy as well, he, evidently in a relaxed state, said that uh, the special military operation was supposed to last a week, and now Berlusconi has um, have, has some kind of friendship with Putin. The two of them got on rather well. And that the situation, Berlusconi said, was escalated after the West sent money and weapons to Kiev. And he was also recorded as saying he'd rather not say out loud what he thinks about Zelensky. And he confirms essentially that he understood that the Russian special military operation was meant to last a few days or a week. Kiev would get a scare to back off from Donbass, from Donetsk and Lugansk, and then a deal would be signed. And that's now an understanding that we've got from um, and at the article from Fiona Hill in Foreign Affairs, where she wrote about a deal being on the table. Erdogan has confirmed that the talks that he was brokering had a deal ready to go. Uh, the Kiev Independent, uh, a pro-Maidan, uh, pro-Zelensky uh, newspaper inside Ukraine itself, confirmed that a deal was there and it was they said it was the intervention of Johnson that killed it. Um, Jacques Beau has cited uh, various sources saying that it was the EU even before Johnson that killed it. And then Putin and Lavrov have also commentated on this and saying it was 
the intervention of the uh, the NATO countries as a collective, which killed this potential deal. So this is now absolutely almost cer- uh, certain that this that this is what the truth is. Every single party to this has now confirmed it, and Berlusconi confirms it again. And he also confirms that it was meant to be a limited operation. And this is where I want to get to miscalculations. And the miscalculation that um, the British made and the Americans made and the French and the Germans was that the limited way the Russians went in uh, signaled weakness. And this was a miscalculation that many people made, including experienced military observers. Um, I will point you again back to the interview I did with Scott Ritter back in January of this year where he expected the Russians to go in all guns blazing and knock over um, Kiev in a few days. Instead of which they did this limited operation, which they initially made a run on Kiev. Remember that dramatic um, incident where the Russian paratroopers landed and took Gostomel uh, Air Base near Kiev, causing an absolute panic and the head of German intelligence to have to be spirited out of the country uh, very rapidly because he was on a visit to Kiev. So first of all, they didn't expect the Russians to to invade at all. Then they expected the Russians to uh, basically unleash hell and blow down Ukraine's house in a couple of days. Then when that didn't happen, uh, and the Russians ended up withdrawing from around Kiev, as Putin said recently in his comments um, in Astana, that this was a, a goodwill gesture withdrawing from around Kiev. And that as soon as they withdrew from around there, that essentially the Ukrainians lost interest in negotiations. I mean, that might be it or it might be that they were basically told by their paymasters you know you've got to keep fighting so once they the again this miscalculation that the um that the europeans and the americans and the british made uh, which was that well the russians haven't knocked them down in a few days so therefore putin must be weak therefore our regime change plan to prolong the war as long as possible can work and that was also a miscalculation because <laughs> they they could have established very quickly i mean you could establish just by trawling through enough open source stuff from russian media that the actual numbers of russian forces inside ukraine were always very very low that most of the fighting was being done by people from the dpr and the lpr plus uh, fighters from the uh, russian national guard chechens etc with the russian armed forces providing air and artillery support and with the Russian Navy also doing some um, support uh, for via the firing of cruise missiles. And we, of course, there were some Russian special forces in there as well, uh, paratroopers, marine troops, spetsnats, etc. But it was by no means the uh, full might of the Russian military was ever being brought to bear on Ukraine. Uh, certainly the operation we're seeing now, where they have knocked out depending upon who you listen to, at least 30% uh, of the electricity generation grid. Of course, the bitter irony about all of this is that Ukraine's electricity generation grid is proving as resilient as it is because it is of Soviet construction and was built with a lot of uh, redundancy in mind and was built with a hell of a lot of capacity and built to be durable up to and including possible nuclear war. So the virulently anti-communist regime that sits in Kiev it only keeps the lights on because of the legacy of the USSR uh, history is full of ironies that one's a particularly bitter one 
So the mis this miscalculation that they made that they could somehow knock over uh, Putin if they managed to increase the uh, perceived defeats on the battlefield, this has also proven to be wrong. Because the, the closest they got to this was the discontent that was unleashed to a degree by what happened up in uh, near Kharkov in the uh, period of the Ukrainian advance in late September to early October. And this might have been part of what triggered the Russian mobilization, um, or it might have been just that the Russian leadership finally got itself around to the point where it could see that there was going to be no negotiation at all, that like the Zelensky was in too deep, um, that they couldn't turn around now, that too much uh, water had gone under that particular bridge, so to speak, and that the the Americans and the British in particular, but let's not let Macron and Schultz off the hook easily for this, that they were also in with this. They were going to keep throwing weapons at money, weapons of money at Kiev, unless, of course, the Russian army could actually deliver some really powerful and clear and obvious knockout blows to uh, the Ukrainian armed forces, which they are now building up towards. Then that flow of weaponry would continue because the psyop that the americans and the british in particular are carrying out it would seem now mainly on themselves that the ukrainians are winning that they're winning that they, they just need a bit more um of this weapon system or that weapon system they need more air defense they need more self-propelled guns need more tanks need more rifles need winter warfare gear that all of this crap that they've been throwing at the wall and seeing how much of it sticks it's just well, if it was designed to convince the russian population to uh, abandon putin well it's been a complete and utter failure an enormous miscalculation that um, completely misunderstood uh, the nature of the russian government the um the depth of national feeling in russia uh, the opinions that the uh, Russian population outside of a few um, circles that the West has access to in like St. Petersburg or Moscow, that how they how the Russian population feels about their own country's position in the world and the uh, contradictory and possibly um, complex feelings they have towards Putin and the Russian government, um, all of which was completely ignored or misunderstood and again like look at what the um the serious military professionals and intelligence professionals who are mostly retired now so they can speak freely have said about the intelligence assessments of the americans in particular which is this is all just based on complete wishful thinking that the truth is probably known on some level or at least a more accurate version of an, of an assessment is known but because the political incentives that exist within the American system are all pointing towards the idea that Putin is simultaneously the reincarnation of Ivan the Terrible, Joseph Stalin, Peter the Great, um, the Mongol hordes headed by Genghis Khan, all of the above, plus um, Hitler. And uh, he simultaneously, all of that, whilst chronically weak and running a country which is um, you know, hopelessly lost to alcoholism and is still stuck in some cliché of the Russian um, history of the, in the 1990s, that the Russian army is terrible and will fall apart when confronted with NATO's uh, wonderful modern weapons systems. Um, that it, All they just need to do is, to quote Hitler, kick the door in and the whole rotten fortress comes down. Well, again, wrong on every single count.
and also while we're talking about it wrong about the sanctions too wrong about the russian economy wrong about how it fits into the world wrong about its gdp wrong about um the assessment of how big it is saying it only had the same um same power as italy wrong about the crucialness of the resources that it provides into the world markets wrong about what the impact would be on uh, the the prices of those resources wrong about uh, the russian diplomatic strength wrong about the reaction of india wrong about the reaction of many of the african nations and on and on and on wrong every single time and yet they keep going with it and they keep going with it and they keep going with it because now they're in too deep these people especially uh, the americans the only thing that they know how to do is to try and keep going do more sanctions throw in iran as well um, say that Iran is now a party to the conflict because they're alleged to have sold um, or provided drones that are now being excused extensively by the Russian military uh, to knock out the Ukrainian energy grid. should be said that uh, both the Russians and the Iranians deny that these are Iranian drones and say that they are made in Russia. I don't know the truth about that one. I would <laughs> suspect that there is an element in the Russians and the Iranians just uh, just trolling the west at this stage who knows but either way to say that iran is a party to the conflict and now we're going to sanction this particular company and the more people in the iranian revolutionary guard the entire iranian government's been under heavy sanctions almost continuously for decades now what more can they do and iran's actually getting more opportunities opened up to it by being able to showcase its weapons technology which is ironically enough according to some people inside iran a lot of it is based on parts from American military equipment the Iranians captured and reversed engineered <laughs> so good stuff there guys good stuff so if Iran is a party to this conflict and needs to be sanctioned and condemned in the UN I mean I'm not quite sure what that makes Britain and the United States who have now looking to pay the bills of the Ukrainian government for an entire year does that make us party to anything can anybody explain this can whoever's running the British government explain it probably not the only thing that you would probably get was a sort of squeaking, stuttering explanation from Ben Wallace, our turnip-headed moron that runs the Ministry of Defense, that, well, we're standing up for freedom and democracy, therefore it's all good, uh, even though there ain't much freedom and not a lot of democracy in Ukraine. Not now, not before February of this year, not even back before 2014. Uh, the Ukrainian oligarchy was never particularly fond of democratic processes. And so... Where does this lead us to? Well, in British terms, and I promised I'd circle back around to this, the policy-making uh, process has really been animated not just by wishful thinking, not just by complete delusions, uh, but also a desperate need to remain close to the Americans, given that after Brexit they were even more dependent upon the inflow of American capital into Britain, but also because the people who run this country are, quite frankly, some of the stupidest, some of the most short-sighted, some of the most moronic characters that have ever disgraced the public sphere in Britain. And we've had a lot of bad, rotten characters in the leadership of the British bourgeoisie, of course. Um, but at least in the old days, they used to be efficiently bad. Uh, they did terrible things across the entire world, but they were good at it. This lot are terrible at it. And, and not just that, there is a brutal cynicism, which has always been there within the British ruling class. It's how they built the empire, after all. But the brutal cynicism towards Ukraine displayed by a man like Boris Johnson. Now, Boris Johnson is a scumbag, a liar, a fraud. 
he's actually one of the smarter politicians that were operating within uh, Britain. And he, though, seeing um, that he was in political trouble due to the fact that he'd, well, fucked everything up, lied about everything, had a load of policies he had no idea how to achieve. Once he famously got Brexit done, he had no idea where he was going to go with it. And the Conservative Party was only united around two things, winning an election and committing to getting the Brexit agreement passed. Once that was done, then the whole thing fell to pieces. And it is continually falling to pieces uh, right up to this moment. Um, But Johnson's brutal cynicism towards Ukraine was that he was using Ukraine as a prop. And Zelensky was willing to be used as a prop. Uh, Being from TV, maybe that came naturally to him. But Johnson um, went over there every time that he was facing some significant problem here, get a photo done with Zelensky, swan about in Kiev, act as if you're in a war zone, even though there's absolutely no chance that the Russians were going to suddenly blow up the British Prime Minister, even though some in this country might have fervently hoped for that and hope that the um, the supposed heroism of the great Zelensky would rub off on him. Uh, turns out that didn't really work very well. But the cynicism of it was such that when asked uh, what uh, why he was staying on um, as Prime Minister when he'd lost so much credibility back in the House of Commons about four months ago now, Johnson said, I'm staying on because I just want to do everything I can to help Ukraine. And then that made me even more ill than Tony Blair did uh, back in the day when he was jabbering on about democracy in Iraq. Because Johnson, I will credit him with this, is a more intelligent man than Tony Blair. Tony Blair uh, and him are both good actors, though. Uh, the, part, uh, the, the man known as Boris Johnson's real name is Alexander Boris de Feffel Johnson. Um, I think that's his full name anyway. He's known, apparently, according to Peter Hitchens, as Al to his uh, family and friends. And he knows very well um, what is going on in Ukraine and what is the actual picture. And he knows that very well because he's not stupid. Uh, Liz Truss is stupid. Keir Starmer is stupid. Boris Johnson is not a stupid man. He does stupid things, but he knows... He understands very well what was going on in Ukraine. He will have been told by his chief of the defense staff, by the intelligence men, who do at some level have an accurate picture of what is going on there, what was going on, and what the likelihood was of Ukrainian success. And we know that he knows that because some of these defense chiefs testified before the Foreign Affairs Select Committee months ago and said that there is absolutely no chance that Britain could go to war with Russia. Um, If we did, we'd be destroyed and knocked over in a week. Not only that, but not only could we not sustain the 80,000 strong army that Britain has now, not only would the Navy be blown out of the water and the Air Force blown out of the sky, but Sunak, when he was Chancellor, when Johnson's administration was still blabbering on about support Ukraine, this, that and the other, said that they weren't going to increase defence spending and Jeremy Hunt careful how you say it, this week um, confirmed that there will be likely to be defence cuts in the near future. So, support Ukraine? How? Nothing bar a enormous intervention from the NATO forces is going to save any of Ukraine. Boris Johnson knew that very well. He didn't care. 
he was just going to use Ukraine as a prop to save his flagging career. Didn't work for him. Liz Truss didn't even get a chance to go over there for a photo call with a stupid hat on and to continue her pathetic Margaret Thatcher cosplay. And so this leads me to the point uh, um, about the, the British war strategy. The, the reason why I have never worried for a second worried for a second that Britain was going to engage in a war with Russia is that we can't. I don't think the Americans can either, but particularly we can't. Because to give an indication of the scale involved here, in World War II, um, before uh, the entry of the United States into the war, there was a real crisis in Britain about industrial organization to fight a war against the uh, the Germans. The, uh, the British government was uh, in a real mess over how they were going to get enough war production organized because they didn't want to institute state control over the industrial base because that was you know, obviously against uh, what the Conservative Party at the time advocated for and believed in. They didn't want to offend the capitalist class, but they were faced with either upping production severely or possibly losing and losing everything. And so, therefore, they had to take a firm hold over the production process in Britain itself of war material and ended up having to do a semi-planned economy for about five years. But it took them about 18 months before they got around to that. And that's when uh, Britain had the industrial capacity to actually produce at um, huge amounts, uh, at a huge rate, the war materials that were necessary for fighting a war against the most industrialized states in Europe with a formidable uh, industrial production base. Now, Russia is a diminished thing from the former Soviet Union, which had a gigantic uh, war material production base, but it still has incredibly powerful um, military industrial complex capable of churning out gigantic numbers of tanks, of rifles, of self-propelled guns, of aircraft, Maybe not of ships anymore. I think they lost some capacity because a lot of their shipyards in the west of the old USSR were actually in Ukraine. Ironically enough, Russia's recapturing those now. But in terms of land and air forces, they're still capable of churning out an enormous amount of material and, of course, have much of the resources that they need to build all this stuff are naturally occurring within Russia itself. We don't have any of that. We don't even have coal mines anymore. We don't. We barely have a functioning nuclear industry. Look at Britain's trade deficit. It's enormous. There is no way that we could turn that around for a war with a shooting war with the Russians. Even if Boris had in some crazy mind, in his crazy mind, the idea that we were going to have you know Crimean War Part Two, a limited war miles away. I don't think he considered it for a moment. I think he knew very well that there was absolutely no way that Britain in its current economic state could sustain a shooting war with the Russians in a serious way. Ben Wallace, the turnip-headed moron who runs the MOD, he knows that. The generals know that. And so what was their plan? Their plan was just to cynically use Ukraine, as was the, the, uh, the French plan, the German plan, the American plan. All of the, the only nation in Europe that could possibly ramp, rapidly up its industrial capacity to go into an all-out war with the Russians would be the Germans, and they were reliant on Russian energy and haven't replaced it yet. Uh, they closed down their coal mines a long time ago. Their nuclear industries fall into disrepair thanks to the absolutely moronic actions of the uh, German political class, which is actually derived from 
a real material thing, which is, of course, that German capitalism doesn't want to pay for the upkeep on uh, nuclear power plants anymore. So the green ideology is a very convenient fig leaf, no pun intended, to actually hide behind when you want to close down something which costs um, a fair amount to maintain, costs even more to build new ones, but doesn't uh, return enough profit to actually justify in the mind of the German capitalist class the investment. Better, better to buy cheap energy off the Russians. Oh shit, it's not available anymore. What are we going to do? And I keep saying this because it's it has to be emphasized. These countries, including the United States, now the United States could, if it was ruled by a competent probably a Bonapartist regime rather than an incompetent mess, significantly develop its uh, domestic manufacturing base. Again, it could do that, but it won't. It has no intention of doing it. Its, its main focus now is on drawing capital away from China. So you may see, as I've said before, some uh, reshoring of domestic capital. But as you'll find out when uh, the interview I just did with Dan Cohen on Haiti comes out, Americans are now making some very aggressive moves inside their own hemisphere because the big thing that they need more than anything else is cheap labor for the industrial bases they are trying to pull out of China. They're not going to go to the domestic United States. They're going to go to areas around the United States which they can then can be subjected to hyper exploitation of labor and the point I'm making here is that there is absolutely very minimal risk of the uh, NATO countries actually coming to Ukraine's aid because they're just not they haven't got the capacity to do it no matter how much those idiotic reactionaries in Warsaw scream and yell and stamp their feet or because they want to seize western Ukraine that's what it's all about there's no there's no possibility of us actually rolling into Western Ukraine because, we, as one as one general put it um, back in April of this year when testifying in the in the House to a House of Commons Select Committee, the British Army had run out of ammunition in a week, and there's been no evidence that they've ramped up production on this at all. So again, like cynical games within cynical games within yet more cynical games are being played here, and in the end. Liz Truss, my, her first call might have been to Zelensky, but what is going to happen now, considering there is now a tailspin in the British political class, that there is panic in the Conservative Party that they're going to get wiped out. There is a growing realisation within the higher echelons of the Labour Party that they're going to be a government that is selected to basically um, clamp down on working class action uh, using the powers that they have through the relationship they have with the trade union bureaucracy and deliver absolutely nothing because British capitalism requires cutbacks and requires uh, retrenchment and requires attacks on the working class, and therefore Starmer will be able to deliver absolutely nothing. And so we are in a deep, deep economic crisis in Britain. The British capitalism is profoundly sick. It is decaying. That is reflected in the political system. That is why Liz Truss only lasted six weeks. It's why the Conservatives can't pick a successor. They don't know who the hell they want. Boris Johnson thinks he's going to stage a comeback. I think that there will be certain people in the ruling class who will tell the Conservative Party that that's not a very good idea. Please find someone else. But ultimately, we head towards an election and the election of Keir Starmer, who will come in and he will make defence cuts. And he will make cuts to absolutely everything because it's what will be demanded by the ruling class. And Ukraine will be left to wither on the vine, just as it will be left to wither ultimately by the Americans. And 
now and what will happen now is when the this Kherson offensive and whatever it is that the Ukrainians ultimately try to pull off down there like we keep seeing these figures that they have 60,000 men there so far it hasn't evidenced itself but time will tell but this offensive plays itself out the Russians despite the stories that various incredibly stupid um, American media outlets including um, that um, was it breaking points with crystal ball or is it crystal Kalinsky these days and um, what's his name Sagar and Jetty the uh, neocon idiot in the glasses uh, jabbering on about the, the Kiev wins again Russians abandoned Kherson um, which if you've been listening to the updates we've been doing simply isn't true the Russians are dug in uh, around Kherson they've built an extensive set of fortifications apparently I've seen various photos coming out of there that document this they are clearing the civilian population out to basically give them more freedom of maneuver and they are determined to defend it and inflict maximum casualties on the Ukrainians, as uh, Surovikin said in his interview recently. So when that is done, and when the Ukrainians have exhausted themselves again in another offensive which goes nowhere, and when Bakhmut falls, which it's looking like it's going to, then the Russian offensive will ramp up again. Uh, the, when these blows come, and they will, I don't know if they will come rapidly, but it seems that something major will be occurring within the next month to six weeks then we could be seeing a collapse of the ukrainian state possibly a collapse of the ukrainian armed forces considering they're having to move more and more um, drafted men from the rear to the front line to cover up the huge losses that are being incurred it won't matter if the brits churn out another ten thousand men who've gone through another basic training course or the poles send a few thousand more of their soldiers to go and die horribly in Russian artillery fire. If the Ukrainian state collapses, then all bets are off. And Ukraine has been left twisting in the wind, and all the promises poured into the ears of Zelensky by various American and British politicians all amount to absolutely nothing. Because in the end, we are facing a situation where Every single ruling class, even those that have uh, integrated themselves into supranational structures, such as the European Union, are going to have to retrench within their own borders in order to survive. That's what's happening with the United States. That's what's ultimately behind their uh, attempts to pull their capitalists out of China. It's uh, something that, strangely enough, the Russians are much better set up for, because um, the final blow that Putin needed to strike against those members of the Russian uh, bourgeoisie who, are, who, all, uh, who spend all of their time exporting capital to foreign bank accounts, well, thanks to the sanctions regime, those people were either driven out or closed down by Joe Biden. <laughs> so you've ended up in a situation where Putin's model of Russian Bonapartism is actually going to, it looks like it, come good in a war that will ultimately Putin didn't really want and didn't want to have to fight this long and didn't want to have to do all the things that he's had to do but ultimately it's looking like it's something that will pay off for him it will not pay off for certainly the ukrainians it will not pay off for uh, joe biden whose party will get annihilated he won't be aware of it so it doesn't really matter it has not paid off for the british conservative party which continues its long-term disintegration and we are now heading into a period where we are looking at the disintegration of the EU, the disintegration and the end of NATO, 
the end of the American-led bloc, most likely. The only question is whether the uh, European powers who keep muttering about building closer alliances with each other, and even Joseph Borrell, the uh, uh, drunk old Spaniard who uh, uttered those comments about Europe being a wonderful garden and the rest of the world being a jungle, even he said in another recent speech that Europe had become far too dependent on the United States for defense, uh, um, for defense purposes. But, of course, they keep saying this, but none of them actually want to do anything about it because, again, this comes back to a problem of um, not only uh, industrial capacity, uh, willingness to spend money on the military, but also ability to defend the European colonial trade routes and trade relations that they have with the African nations, for instance. I mean, they're losing out now more and more as African nations start to shove, particularly the French military, out the German militaries, again, as I've covered before, far too small to actually engage in the kind of aggressive um, operations that the French used to do. And now more and more African nations are turning around and telling them to fuck off, and quite rightly so. Um, do they invest more in their military? Schultz has said he's going to do so, but if they're in the middle of a severe recession and the economic base is actually shrinking and German industry is actually going elsewhere and shutting up shop inside Germany itself... How are you going to expand your military if your industrial base is withering before your very eyes? That's what part of what made the British military wither away as well. And the British thought that they could continue to operate their imperial system via small footprint wars, uh, via the training of local forces to do your bidding, via the cultivation of comprador bourgeoisies. Well, if that time has gone and all of that uh, road has run out on the British ruling class, where do they go now? And where do the Germans go now? These are all the unanswered questions, which one of the reasons why the rulers of Europe seem so frozen and stuck and clueless is because all these issues are confronting them and they don't know what to do. Either way they go forward leads them into a gigantic conflict. If they try and uh, ramp up repression uh, so that they can further exploit the working class inside Germany, that's going to cause a major explosion against a, a bourgeois government of Germany, which is chronically lacking in popularity or much legitimacy, I would argue. Same thing for Macron in France. Same thing for the um, the tools that run Spain. Um, it's yet to be seen what uh, Meloni uh, and her coalition will do in Italy. I imagine it'll be an awful lot of capitulating. But then you get the problems in Eastern Europe. You get Hungary under Orban potentially going its own way. You get the Turks slowly making their way out of NATO, though Erdogan seems to be adopting the uh, the policy of it's better to get thrown out than leave yourself. So everywhere we look, we see disintegration in what was formerly known as the advanced capitalist world. Nobody has emerged yet on that stage who is prepared to put his foot down, even from the bourgeois perspective, and s signal a clear break with the past. And until that happens, then what we're going to be faced with is just a downward spiral, um, not just in Britain, but across Europe. So that brings me to the end of today's update. This was more focused on the politics and some of the economics of the situation in Ukraine. Tomorrow, I'll be looking more at the military side of things with reference to um, some of the military theorists that um, are often cited, uh, Clausewitz, Moltke, etc., in an attempt to understand the military picture a little bit better. 
So uh, look out for that tomorrow. Over the course of the weekend coming up, I'm going to be recording the uh, reading group on Marx's The Poverty of Philosophy and also the October questions and answer session. So last chance to put in Q&A points on the Patreon page if you haven't already. But until tomorrow, thank you for listening and I will be back with you again very soon. Souvenir des jeunes